welcome to the book of india a podcast series on the constitution of india and how it fares today i am your host keshav padmanabhan in this episode of the book of india conversations i have ritika sharma team lead and senior resident fellow with the center for legal policy to discuss the fundamental values that shaped the constitution of india the founding of the indian state hinged on the adoption of certain core values the values were first described in the objective resolutions moved by pandit jawaharlal nehru where he described the resolution as a pledge that deals with the fundamentals that are commonly held and have been accepted by the people the constituent assembly therefore declared its firm and solemn resolve to claim india as an independent sovereign republic the resolution further promised that all power and authority of the sovereign independent india its constituent parts and organs of government are derived from the people moreover the assembly also pledged that all people of india would be guaranteed and secured justice social economic and political equality of status of opportunity and before the law freedom of thought expression belief faith worship vocation association and action subject to law and public morality and adequate safeguards shall be provided for minorities backward and tribal areas and depressed and other backward classes the objective resolution provided the framework of ideas within which the constituent assembly would work with to draft and discuss the constitution of india i believe a good question to understand here is how far did the constitution of india go to secure and guarantee those values and how did that translate into the larger policy making scenario of india over the last 75 years i welcome ritika who is joining us now and start off this conversation with the hope that some of these larger values contained within the book of india would be made clear by the end of this conversation good day to you ritika thanks a lot kesha i'm glad to be here so ritika to start off with you know as i had described earlier the objectives resolution laid out a clear pledge for how the constituent assembly envisioned the indian state could you take us through the how these values translated into the final document uh kesha that sounds like a good question to start off with and in fact you've done half my job by already setting the context by quoting the objectives resolution which was moved by uh, pandit nehru back in december 1946 uh, so we should also keep this in mind that the objectives resolution uh as i said was moved in december 1946 and from that to the eventual form that the constitution took was obviously a long drawn process uh, spanning across more than two years almost so there was a one in discussion in the constituent assembly about the kind of independent nation the framers wanted for themselves as well as for the people at large so these discussions culminated in uh, some sort of a consensus sometimes that consensus was achieved after a lot of struggle after significant struggle on the fundamental values or the fundamental core which the constitution had to be based on so if you look at the text of the constitution and i know um, you would you would like me to answer how these values translated into the final document you'll find that most of these fundamental values are imbibed either in the preamble of course obviously that's the obvious answer 
or in specific provisions of the constitution. So um, if, if people have, have sort of glanced through the preamble to the constitution, they know that the preamble wants India to be, or in, uh, envisions India to be a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic. So these are the, some of the very fundamental values that um, the, the Indian Republic was, was sort of founded upon. So, well, of course, then there are these explicitly mentioned values. But besides those, of course, there are other values which are rather fundamental, which literally may not find a mention in the preamble. And when I think about that, I, the first value that comes to my mind is that of federalism or just the term federal, which if you look at the preamble, Keshav, it's, it's not present in the constitution in the preamble. But the scheme or the essence of uh, federalism gets captured when we look at the scheme of relations between different tiers of government in India, particularly the uh, scheme of relations between you know, the, the center, the union government and the state governments and how that is that is sort of fleshed out within the constitution. So even though federal as a word literally may not be mentioned in the preamble, federalism does, of course, form the bedrock of a relationship between the three tier, the two tiers of government. And of course, now we also have local governments. Um, in the same way, uh, I know I just said secular is mentioned in the preamble, but it wasn't included in the preamble at the time of adoption of the constitution. In fact, it got inserted in 1976 when the 42nd Amendment was, was brought into force at the height of emergency. Um, but again, even if secular was not mentioned in the preamble till then, does that mean India wasn't secular till 1976? Of course it was, because again, the essence of secularism was getting captured in the provisions concerning religious freedoms and uh, non-discrimination on grounds of religion. So broadly, yes, if you were to look at these languages, I would say go to the preamble of the constitution and also specific provisions of the constitution which encapsulate these values. Right. Thank you for that. So, I mean, it has been about 76 years since the first fundamentals of India was described, right, in the Objectives of Resolution. Looking back, could you give us an idea of what you consider to be the five fundamental values that shaped India's journey? Um, so, it's actually a tough one there because you've asked me uh, to talk about exactly five fundamental values. My response to that uh, is going to be, um, I'm sure it's going to be more than five. Uh, but if you want me to distill it to just about five, I would say let's let's definitely start with the obvious one, democracy. Um, and the, the, the second one, I would like to say something that I've already briefly spoken about, federalism. The third is separation of powers. And what I mean by separation of powers is um, the fact that the three limbs of government, the executive legislature and the judiciary are separate and independent in, in, within, their, within their own realms. But of course, they also perform this checking and balancing function where one keeps a check on the other so that, of course, they're not completely unhinged in how they function. So we are at number three, democracy, federalism, separation of powers. The fourth one, again, I know people have their doubts about it in this day and age, but yes, secularism was again one of the fundamental values. Uh, that 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 shaped that has been shaping India's journey, and the last one I would say fraternity. Fraternity um, generally, I think, sort of underpins uh, a lot of these values. So yes, democracy, federalism, separation of powers, secularism, and uh, fraternity. Um, so while while you ask me for five, I'm I'm just going to chip in a sixth value also, which I think sort of underpins everything that I've just mentioned, and that is the spirit of plurality. Um, in fact, in a recent position paper that me and my colleagues at Vidhi uh, had, have written, it's a position paper titled One Nation, Many Paths. Um, we talk about how India has always been home, home to a plurality of religions, governments, languages and voices. 
And what underpins all of this uh, is a spirit of plurality, which I think is a value that that sort of under that 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 forms the basis of every other value that the Indian Constitution is based upon. Fair enough. And you know, thank you for sort of listing what you would consider as you know five fundamental values plus plurality. But when it comes to specific values, right, both the objectives, resolution, and the preamble of the Constitution have emphasized the democratic values of India. What really did they envision as democratic? And what are the institutions in place to ensure that a colonial state could be transformed into a functioning democracy? It's, it's actually a very uh, nuanced question um, uh, that, I, that I see you've asked me, Kesha, because if you talk about democracy, then I think the first, first sort of um, a thought that somebody has in mind when they think about a functioning democracy is, yes, if, if a particular uh, nation, if a particular society is electing its leaders based on some sort of election, some sort of electoral practice, then it necessarily has to be a functioning democracy. Um, so, you know, if, if you were to think about a functioning democracy like that, maybe India was anyway a democracy because it's not as if elections weren't happening before, um, before independence. So what exactly changed if you're talking of a democratic uh, republic that we set up post-independence, what, what changed post-1947 or, well, post-1950 when the, when the constitution actually came into force? Um, and I'm, I'm going to take the liberty of um, citing or, or mentioning a Ornit Shani's work, uh, where she, she's actually written a wonderful bo- a book on how India became democratic, which is on the preparation of the first ever electoral role for India, uh, which, which uh, ultimately um, ended up in how elections happened. The first general elections happened in 1952. So Ornit Shani actually mentions that a significant departure from colonial practice and significant departure in how elections were being conducted in independent India was the adoption of universal adult suffrage. So actually, um, she's very categorical about the fact that electoral institutions existed before independence. But again, those electoral institutions, as well as the processes they followed, they were largely a means of strengthening the colonial state. So again, as elections were happening, but there were two major differences in elections that happened prior to independence and the ones that happened later. The first difference was, first of all, that franchise was limited. Um, and the concept, the entire concept of representation, who can vote, who can ideally contest for election, that was very limited. And the concept of representation was by itself was, um, was, was sort of based on separate electorates where seats were allotted along either religious, religious lines or community lines or professional lines. So yes, in a way, the franchise was very limited. Um, and vote, the voter was not really identified as an individual. The, the law which sort of governed election back then defined a voter as member of a community or a group. So that was one thing. Um, the other point was even the electorate was, was small and divided and divided either on basis of property, how many property a particular person owned and if that sort of that ownership, um, that ownership empowered that person to vote or how well educated that person was or what the gender of that person was. So in fact, the electorate was divided based on qualifications related to property, education or gender. And if you were to even look at the Government of India Act of 1935, the suffrage that it extended suffrage to just uh, over a little over 30 million people, which, 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 is a, which was a very small proportion of the adult population. So this is where we were prior to independence, a very limited uh, conception of representation existed prior to independence. 
So what changed? What changed um, after the after independence and what momentous developments took place that changed the entire uh, the the scope of democracy that India was to now uh, imbibe within its values? One was, of course, in the midst of partition, while all of this was happening, India's first electoral role was being prepared. And here, franchise was being extended to a wider range of people, to, to basically, if, if I may say so, the entire adult population of the country. And the electoral role was meant to include names of all adult men and women without any qualification relating to property or education or things like that. That was being prepared and was actually being done by the Constituent Assembly Secretariat itself under the guidance of uh, the Constitutional Advisor B.N. Rao. And in March 1915, this task was handed over to India's first Chief Election Commissioner. And this is where I'm going to briefly talk about the Election Commission, which is which a constitutional body, which is, of course, tasked with conducting supervising elections in a free, fair and independent manner. So, of course, the preparation of the electoral role happened, culminated sometime in 1949. And the first Lok Sabha elections uh, were culminated in, uh, happened in 1952. And this is when parliamentary democracy, which is based on universal adult suffrage, was brought to life in India. So, yes, of course, there was this clear, clear sort of uh, transition from um, a limited a limited franchise to a more expanded one. And there is this institution of the election commission, which now forms the bedrock of independent elections. Again, I'm going to say, I think people have their concerns about the independence of the election commissions, but by and large, it, it did usher in um, a, a wider conceptualization of democracy in India. So, so here you see that this, this value of democracy sort of shifted from limited, you know, gendered property owning individuals to every individual in India whose only qualification I imagine would be you have to be above the age of 18 right so that that's sort of how here we see the constitution playing its role in in, enshrining democracy as a value which then brings me to another question you know and you've sort of spoken about this briefly earlier on in our discussion on federalism and here I just wanted to quote Pandit Nehru once again, uh, he made it clear in his speech to the assembly during the objectives resolution that our republic shall include the whole of India. If a part within it desires to have its own type of administration, it will be at liberty to have it. Right. So this is sort of highlighting the value of federalism. Right? The value of federalism has been oft debated in the Indian context. So could you highlight the evolution of federalism in India? Sure, Keisha, before, before I talk about the evolution of federalism, let's, let's, get, uh, let's park one thought that the constitution was being prepared during a time when the country was, was going through a, a rather bloody partition, which was along religious lines. And of course, uh, the framers of the constitution were acutely aware that whatever form the new state, as well as the constitution, were to take, um, you had to you had to obviously keep this uh, fact in mind that a partition was taking place. Of course, there there is there are there are possibly secessionist tendencies brewing elsewhere also, and not just where the exact the actual partition took place. So, um, and this is this is to, to be honest. I mean, I'm only going to speak about federalism because that's the question you've asked me. But even when they were debating other language, oh, I'm sorry, other values, these these concerns were playing at the back of their minds. 
Um, and in fact, if one were to pass through the constituent assembly debates, a lot of these concerns about how the partition was happening, how that clearly there was deep distrust between communities, these issues kept coming up before uh, they started discussing the foundational values of the constitution. So even when federalism and broadly the scheme of relation uh, between the union government and the provincial governments, they were called provincial governments back then and now they're called state governments currently. Um, the entire discussion around that was again, very, very cognizant about the fact that the partition was going on. And the fact that this partition posed a foundational threat um, uh, and states could have possibly showed, and I'm quoting from one of the discussions, because states could have exhibited fissiparous tendencies or tendencies where they, they would have possibly wanted to separate from the Indian Union. And all of these circumstances propelled the Constituent Assembly to very consciously design and adopt a centralized federal model in which residuary powers would lie with the Union government. Uh, so that the union government uh, could have could take decisive action to protect national integrity. Again, national integrity and keeping the union together was was a big concern. Um, and when I talk about residuary powers, what do I mean? I'm going to get slightly technical cases so bear with me for just about a couple of minutes. Um, as people, as, as some people would know, um, the, the constitution has something called the seventh schedule, which has three lists or the union list, state list, and the concurrent list. So the union list, as the name would possibly suggest by itself, uh, has, has a list of matters, subject matters that the union government can enact laws on. The state list, it has, uh, has subject matters that the state government can enact laws on and current list is obviously a place where both central and state government can can enact laws on uh, so the residuary powers everything anything that did not fall uh, in any of these three lists residuary powers with respect to those matters by itself were given to the union government again as i said so that the union government uh, could have this could take decisive action to protect national integrity um and in fact keshav uh, when i talk about this sort of a scheme the constitution was actually continuing the broad framework of the Government of India Acts of both 1919 and 1935. So while there were uh, patches of limited self-governance at the provincial level, the hugely centralizing features of the constitution were for everyone to see. And as I keep saying, uh, it, it happened for a reason. It happened so that the union could be kept together in a time which was clearly uh, rather volatile. So reflecting this, in fact, uh, the term federalism actually does not appear in the text of the constitution, something that I just mentioned to you uh, a few minutes back. So I'll just very briefly also mention what Dr. Ambedkar highlighted about India's constitution. It's He said that the Indian constitution did not follow the tight mold of the other federal systems. And it actually offered the Indian Union to be, uh, it offered the Union to be, to the flexibility to both be both unitary as well as federal, according to the requirements of time and circumstances. So the intent was actually to have an adequate division of power, but there was also this, this sentiment that India should be able to tide over social, political, and economic crisis at a time through a stable national government. Um, so the outcome, as we know, is a constitution that allows for a very strong center, which at the same time also required interdependence and cooperation from states. And to be honest, these are the two strands of Indian federalism that have evolved over the years, maintaining a careful balance between centralization of power so that we can meet our national needs 
and at the same time expansion of state powers to meet diverse regional requirements so this is where this is the sort of um, shape indian federalism has has taken over the years i mean it's it's good that you mention or you set out this context of the unionless stateless concurrent list right and um, this is off debated because one of the biggest you know historical arguments of how institutions have been built is that it's a mirror of the government of india act 1935 right in, in terms of the competence of the union government state government and then you have this concurrent list and i just wanted to highlight here and then you know pose my next question to you rithika is you mentioned that there's a careful balance yet a centralization of power right and here i just want to highlight a very interesting sort of dilemma that arises for example recently in september 2020 we had these farmers bills that were passed by the parliament right uh, which is interesting because if you see uh, you know agriculture as a subject comes under the state list but interstate trade and commerce comes under the union list right and here you see this very interesting issue where you know when the central government passed this farmers bills of interstate and commerce it comes under the central list the union list but agriculture as a subject is a state subject so there is this oft sort of competing interests you know that that arises in indian federalism which has led to major conflicts so can you sort of go into you know how do we deal with these major conflicts that arise due to these sort of competing interests or union state concurrent and these various lists sure um so i'm i'm actually having a lot of thoughts keshav now that you mentioned this because these are the sort of uh, concerns that keep happening every now and then and in fact the farmers bills is just uh, to to somebody um, who's who's seeped into academic constitutional law concepts the first question they'll answer is okay so where does legislative competence here lie which list should we should we um, should we resort to 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 sort of resolve this entire um entire conflict about whether the state government is a state legislature is the competent authority to draft these laws or it's the central government or the union government and in fact there's this uh, in the last few years i think about since about a decade or, or maybe even um, uh, for longer than that there has been this entire discourse that maybe the seventh schedule by itself at this point requires a relook requires some sort of redrafting because again um, uh, it's it's been over here since since the seventh schedule came into force along with the rest of the constitution there have been amendments education um, as we know was shifted from the state list to the concurrent list so which basically In, in real terms, what that means is, back in the day, the state, the state government was the one with exclusive competence on a subject like education. But now it's the concurrent; it's under the concurrent competence of the union as well as the states. So um, there's this there's this sort of budding discourse about a relook at the seventh schedule to have a wider range of powers um, for state governments. And if I were to talk about it just numerically, I know numerically is is um, is definitely not the most substantive way to talk about it. But the union list has over ninety odd entries, while the state list has about sixty odd entries. So again, sorry, sorry to make this very numerical, but again, maybe the seventh schedule by itself requires some sort of relooking, and we possibly would like to have. Um, 
a more a more wide array of powers that the state a wide array of subject matters that um, the state government should be uh, competent to enact laws on that's one thing the other thing is at the same time i know i've said a lot of these things about having a wider array of powers for the state governments at the same time let's not forget um the way the seventh schedule was actually drafted and the way uh, the entries were divided across these three lists Again, the constitution framers were rather acutely aware about how to go about it, because um, and and one 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 sort of uh, interesting example that comes to my mind when I talk about something like this is whatever happened during COVID. Um, so we know that public health forms part of the state list, which basically means that state governments have the power to enact laws on public health, take other administrative measure with respect to ensuring that public health is in, is in a good shape all the time. So yes, that's from forms part of the state list. But if you look about if you, if you talk about how to curb the transmission of diseases between one state to another, that actually forms part of the concurrent list. Because when it's between two states and when we when boundaries of two states are being crossed, probably this is what the constitution framers would have thought. Um, it's best to empower the state government, or I'm sorry, the central government to make sure that diseases do not spread across states. In fact, even interstate quarantine forms part of um, um, is is well within uh, the realm of uh, the union government to pass laws on and take administrative measures on. So to simplify this, I don't want to make this very technical about how entries are split across um, these three lists. I don't want to make it too technical. But yes, possibly um, some sort of relook into uh, the three list is required because even, of course, uh, with the, the, these farm laws are just one of the many examples where union governments might be making laws on matters which are strictly within the competence or within the realm of state government. So yes, some sort of relooking might be required because we are not talking of provinces back in the 1950s. We are talking of state governments in 2022. Uh, and of course, a lot of these governments are self-sufficient uh, and they would, of course, be competent to enact laws and administrative measures can be taken by them on subject matters that fall strictly within their competences. Yes, some sort of re-looking into the seventh schedule at this point might be a good way to uh, go forward. And that might have actually also address a lot of these competing questions upon whether the union government or the state government. Thank you for that, Lithika. I just wanted to sort of ask you, you know, what do you see is as sort of the contemporary conflicts uh, that has arisen due to, you know, uh, the federalist nature of the constitution. Sure. So um, there are there are actually several conflicts, uh, Keshav, that have that that we that we are currently faced with. When I talk about how the federal scheme of um, Indian constitution has played out in practice, there are of course concerns about over centralization. And issues such as the GST and how how the uh, how the entire GST universe is unfolded. There are concerns about um, specific arrangements with different territories, such as I'm sure the, the most widely known one is Article 370 and the specific relationship with Kashmir. There's an entire chapter on temporary and transitional provisions, which uh, which spells out the differential rights that are granted to certain federal subunits. Um, and I mean, we could have a longer discussion on just contemporary concerns with respect to federalism. I'll point out just two in the interest of time, and I think, and I think it might just put into context um, where exactly the federal scheme of the Indian Constitution might uh, might sort of merit a relook. The first is with respect to the role of the governor. And I think even if somebody were, were not privy to exactly how the governor's office came into being or how it sort of uh, is supposed to function, I think 
it has so happened in the last decade or so, or maybe even before that, the office of the governor has been uh, mired in so many controversies that most people now know exactly what may be wrong with the office of the governor. Um, so very briefly, just, just to sort of uh, lay down some context about this entire governor related controversy. So in India's federal setup, what happens is the governor, the state governors uh, are supposed to play a dual role. And it's, it's, it's actually uh, rather well known that they are supposed to play this dual role. One limb of their role is they're supposed to act, they're supposed to be the constitutional head of the state. Um, the second thing is that they're also meant to be a link uh, between the state and the union. And I think what has happened is, and uh, as controversial as if it may sound, um, for, for, for several decades, governor, in order to perform the latter function of being the link between the state and the union, have routinely recommended the imposition of president's rule in states to dismiss political formations, which are hostile to the center. In fact, that happened in, till, till several decades, um, uh, till the 1990s, mid 1990s, when the Supreme Court eventually had to intervene, um, I mean, not intervene on its own, but of course, based on based on a petition that was made by one by someone. Um, this was in the case of SR Bomai versus Union of India, where the Supreme Court said that the power of the governor to, um, to, to sort of uh, proclaim emergency in, in a particular state should be circumscribed and should be made uh, made only after after proper uh, and substantive assessment of what were the factors that were prevailing in a particular state. So what has happened it is the practical impact of that decision has been that there have been far fewer instances of imposition of president's rule in, um, in state governments. Um, it's not as if that has stopped completely, because as we know recently in Uttarakhand as well as Uttaranchal, there have been such instances of imposition of president's rule. But yes, the number of uh, such instances have definitely gone down. So what's happened is over time, the post of the governor has become has, has started being utilized as a political position for furthering the union's ends. So even while the post of the governor was intended to be protected from vested interest, governors have played several controversial roles. There have been frequent run-ins between the governors and the state government. So maybe the entire scheme of the office of the governor deserves some sort of relook at this point. That's the one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing with respect to the scheme of Indian federalism that I, I can't stop myself from mentioning is um, the very, the rather patchy reform of local governments in India. So local governments, as we know, panchayats as well as municipalities, panchayats particularly, they've, they've existed since, since, since forever. Um, but they were constitutionally recognized only in uh, 1992, when the 73rd and 74th amendments inserted two specific chapters, two specific parts or in the constitution recognizing panchayats and municipalities. But the scheme of those chapters is such that the constitution now nudges the state governments to devolve certain functions to local governments. And mind you, this is a nudge. This is not a mandatory devolution that the constitution requires from the state governments. So what happens is the reform or the kind of functions that have been defaulted to local governments across India actually vary. So while a Kerala might, might have done, uh, might be miles ahead, uh, in the kind of functions and finances they have devolved to local governments, another state uh, in another, another part of India might not have done, the, uh, done, done it similarly, simply because the constitution does not mandate that local governments have to be empowered uh, mandatorily. Um, it's, it's merely a nudge. So at this point, what has happened is local governments are neither fully empowered, nor do they have enough finances to carry on functions that they ideally would like to carry on. 
So this, this rather patchy reform of local governments also means that we have to look at what the constitution says, perhaps go back to the 73rd and 74th amendments and see what they potentially may have missed out on, what could have been done better. But yes, if you want to truly deepen federalism in India, we can't, we can't, we cannot not take our local government seriously. Right. Now, I just want to sort of move the conversation a bit on a different uh, track here, given that we've sort of discussed federalism as a value quite in depth. You know, I think the way I'm going to start this question is that I heard a very interesting comment the other day uh, made by Alok Prasanna at Vidyan Mantan's event on secularism in Hyderabad. Here, Alok stated that secularism as an idea should be understood with that of fraternity. That equality, secularism, and fraternity feed into one another to strengthen the values of the constitution, right? So do you agree with this notion? And if so, how do these ideas strengthen one another? That's actually a very interesting statement. Uh, you you mentioned Keshav. In fact, even I had the good fortune of uh, listening to Alok Prasanna make this comment. Um, and, and well, yes, I fully agree with this notion that equality, secularism and fraternity are supposed to feed into one another. In fact, that's true of any value within uh, the Indian constitution. None of these values were ever supposed to operate in isolation. You can't be saying secularism is on one tangent while equality operates on a completely different tangent. So I fully agree with Alok when he says this. Um, and if I have to talk about Indian federalism, I cannot not talk about how Indian secularism is always considered to, to be a rather peculiar conceptualization of Indian secularism. And it's very palpably distinct from its Western counterparts. And I'm using the term Western here very, very loosely. Um, and uh, of course, there are several conceptualizations of uh, different conceptualizations of secularism in the West also. Uh, but yes, uh, if, if I have to very simply put it, a very strict separation of uh, state and religion as possibly prevails in the West would not have worked for India. And again, the constitution framers were cognizant of this fact. Uh, so Indian secularism, and if you get the chance to read several scholars on Indian secularism, they mention that Indian secularism is oscillating somewhere between two two. Uh, two sort of ideas. The first idea is that of religious neutrality and what I'm sure you, you might have heard this several places, religious neutrality meaning dharma nirpekshita. Um, and the state is not going to sort of align with any particular religion. So yes, there's one idea of religious neutrality. The second idea is that of equal respect for all religions, which basically means sarva dharma sambhav. So you have, you can't be discriminating between any um, two individuals on the grounds of religion. And Again, why, why are we oscillating between these two language, uh, between these two ideas? Why can't we just have one sort of idea which, which is our go-to idea for Indian secularism? And uh, there are several re reasons for it. I've, I've had the interesting opportunity to go through the constituent assembly debates where um, the, the framers were discussing what sort of shape Indian secularism was supposed to take. And um, some of the factors which drove the, in, the constitution framers to arrive at a certain conceptualization of Indian secularism were, one, they understood that Indians are deeply religious. And in fact, I think that's, that's, that's true of Indians back then and it's true of Indians currently also. They're deeply religious. So, you know, if you completely, strictly separate state from religion, that sort of a secularism won't fly in India. That was one. The second point was the multiplicity of religions. So 
it's not as if India suddenly became multi-religion post-independence. It was always multi-religious. So yes, there was a multiplicity of religions. The third, and again, I keep coming back to this point, the third and very compelling reason why um, the Indian constitution does not abide by one particular religion is because we were at that particular point going through a rather hostile partition, which was based, which is premised on religion. It was a partition along religious lines. So, which is because of all of these reasons, um, Indian secularism had to marry itself to both the values of equality, so that the state could not be seen to be siding or aligning or sponsoring one particular religion. At the same time, it also had, had to get married to fraternity, so that all religions could feel welcome within the Indian society. It could not have been that the state is clearly giving certain, certain, um, certain sort of I mean, for lack of a better word, benefits to one particular religion and depriving some other religion completely of those benefits. So yes, Indian secularism had to um, sort of be cognizant and be married to both these values. And um, very briefly, uh, if you look at the constitution, the essence of secularism, people read too much into the word secularism mentioned right up front in the preamble. But the actual meat or the essence of Indian secularism actually lies in um, the provisions which guarantee the right to religious freedom or the right against non-discrimination on grounds of religion. So in fact, the constitution exhibits a combination of this freedom of religion for individuals as well as for communities, mind you. It's not just for individuals, it's for communities as well along with a mandate for the state to actually intervene in religious affairs also. So when I say the state has a mandate to intervene in religious affairs, I mean the state is allowed or it's permitted, it's actually empowered to intervene in those religious matters which may be illiberal or may be regressive. Um, and, and I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of our listeners would have heard about the reform to Hindu personal law that happened uh, because the state was so empowered to um, to to reform Hindu personal law, wherever it it um, it, it it was it was regressive. Um, at the same time, the constitution also guarantees to every religious denomination the right to manage its own affairs in matters of religion, of course, subject to public order, morality, and health. As I mentioned already, the adoption of a state religion for India was considered unsuitable, while uh, the guarantee of non-discrimination on grounds of religion, as well as religious minorities' right to establish and administer educational institutions of their choice, all of these rights were incorporated. So yes, I mean, Indian secularism, to be distinct from its Western counterpart, and to actually uh, establish itself well within the Indian society, had to keep equality and fraternity by its side. Fair enough. I mean, I think that's a very interesting perspective. And, uh, you know, now that we've looked at sort of secularism in that sense, we also, I mean, had a long conversation on this topic with uh, Professor Zoya Hassan a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, there are always these questions which shows how, you know, we're looking at the constitution as a living document that evolves <laughs> rather than you know, something that is permanent and can never be changed, you know, the values can never be, you know, rethought or re-looked at, yeah. which, which sort of brings me to my next question, right? As I said, the constitution for us is something that has continuously evolved. It's been amended multiple times. And in today's conversation, you've mentioned the 42nd Amendment, which brought in, you know, the term secularism to the preamble of the 72nd and 73rd Amendment which spoke on local governments and sort of nudged the state to devolve powers, right? So in, in this sense, just by 
new new medical you know idea we've already crossed 70 plus amendments in fact last i remember i think we have about 106 plus amendments to our constitution in comparison to say the us that has 27 amendments and the yeah. the constitution in america has lasted much longer than the indian constitution and we have about four almost five times the number of amendments right keeping this in mind keeping that we've had numerous amendments and laws that have been passed over the last seven decades right how have these amendments changed the very contours of the fundamental values of india and what are the biggest changes that this has brought about sort of to the values imbibed in the constitution um so the way we look uh, look at it keshav yes there is there have been of course amendments that have changed the contours of the fundamental values of india um and i know we keep going back to the 42nd amendment actually very interestingly i was speaking to a group of students at um, a few weeks ago and one of the students actually asked me and this was a discussion on indian secularism and very interestingly this this one student asked me that okay fine we understand there is a secular that's mentioned in the preamble uh, there are judgments of the supreme court which have said that secularism is part of the basic structure of the constitution but let's say by some sort of uh, parliamentary innovation tomorrow secularism is taken out of the preamble uh, does that mean india will stop being a secular state from now on and and i fully understand where 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 people's concern might come uh, from if they say oh, what if tomorrow secular was to be um, taken out of the preamble but to be very honest kesha we might be reading too much into that one word that was inserted in the 40 uh, by the 42nd amendment in the preamble india was not india did not become secular after 96 when the word got inserted um india has been secular nonetheless uh, before the 42nd amendment and even now it's it's um, secular in fact as i just mentioned in response to your previous question india is secular because of the scheme of fundamental rights or the scheme of rights that guarantees religious freedom or non discrimination to people so yes let's not read too much into this particular uh, amendment um in fact now that you are talking about changing contours of fundamental uh, values of india by amendments i am i'm finding it unable to stop myself by uh, talking about all the uh, uh, everything that the 42nd amendment did uh, which which is not worthy of any celebration Uh, so uh, again, Forty Second Amendment. If you look at the timeline, this came into um, force in 1976 at the height of the emergency, of course. And you, um, I mean, I don't want to go into the history of what exactly was happening then for people to sort of make a connection about where I'm going with this. Uh, but yes, the the inroads that this amendment made into the powers and jurisdiction of the judiciary of the higher judiciary that deserves an altogether separate mention um so what this amendment did was it precluded the supreme court of of all institutions from adjudicating on the constitutionality of a state law for alleged violation of fundamental rights unless a central law was also questioned in the same proceeding so you see you want see you see where where this amendment is going case of it's actually uh, curbing the uh, curbing the power of the judiciary to adjudicate on the constitutionality of of a state law you you are asking you're not not actually asking but you are saying that the constitutional court of the country cannot adjudicate on the constitutionality of a state law um and courts were actually entirely excluded from deciding upon the disqualification for membership in parliament and in a state legislature of a person who is found guilty of corrupt practices in an election so in fact this this sort of uh, amendment gave a collective blow to the supreme court as well as the fundamental rights 
and uh, many constitutional amendments the this 42nd amendment mandated they could not be questioned in any court on any ground while also placing amendments to fundamental rights fully beyond the purview of judicial review so you you see that I mean like the, the, the this this if if shaping the contours of fundamental values is what we are talking about this amendment actually completely sort of um and, and and i know i've mentioned separation of powers i should have also mentioned something called judicial independence over there independence of judiciary is also a value that the indian constitution has been espousing for all these years but if you look at the 42nd amendment by curbing the powers of the judiciary um many scholars have argued that it is the 42nd amendment that actually was 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 the first instance where the where some sort of seeds of distrust was sown between the judiciary and the executive and um, it, it's it's a very long winded discussion about how from there to now we are at a point where the judiciary was so distrustful of the executive that it has now shaped how judicial independence act, uh, judicial appointments actually happen and uh, the judiciary has now begun to assert itself by saying appointments to the judiciary should be uh, should happen only by the judges themselves you know nobody else should be appointing us we should be the ones appointing us so i'm not trying to play sort of you know pick sides here but is yes, this 42nd amendment in a way did sort of change the contours of this fundamental value of separation of powers how we um, how the judiciary sort of views the executive um how the contours of independence of the judiciary have changed so yes there is this entire um, amendments have clearly sort of uh, changed changed the entire limit and scope and the contours of fundamental values um besides that um the other thing i do want to mention is besides amendments as well as legislative changes how these values have shaped also depends to a great deal on how the supreme court has interpreted a lot of these terms um so I, I had briefly mentioned something about this judgment uh, from uh, I think uh, the the nineteen nineties called S R Bhumi. So why how how did we come to this point where we are talking about something called S R Bhumi and federalism? And in fact, S R Bhumi versus Union of India is that judgment which has made a very tangible impact on uh, the value of federalism. So very briefly, I'll take just a couple of minutes to talk about how S R Bhumi may have a judgment of the Supreme Court may have actually shaped the contours of federalism in India. as we now know it so back in the 1970s and 1980s there were constant tussles between the center and opposition ruled states and um, it's very i mean I, i'm calling it funny now but yes it was a rather worrisome development uh, in the in 1977 the janata party at the center dissolved seven congress ruled state governments and the congress then settled scores in 1980 by dismissing governments in several janata party ruled states so, you, so i'm sure you you're understanding that this is this is uh, this clearly was being used as a tool to settle scores um, the left right and center and in fact this practice continued till the late 1980s when sr bomai who was the former chief minister of karnataka questioned before the supreme court the scope of the president's power to proclaim emergency in a state under article 356 of the constitution so in sr bomai the supreme court actually endorsed the constitution's federal credentials and it unanimously decided that this particular provision article 356 could be used only in case of a complete breakdown of constitutional machinery in a state and it it i mean it has to be either complete breakdown or nothing else you can't just be sort of you know uh, proclaiming emergency in a state um based on a particular individual's whims and fancies and ever since what's happened is arbitrary dismissal of state assemblies by the center 
have happened only sporadically. The number has actually gone down. So it's clearly a very tangible impact on how federalism is now viewed in the country, or viewed um, within Indian politics. So yes, apart from just uh, amendments, there is or there are also interpretations given by the Supreme Court, which have for the better in some cases, maybe for the worse in others, they've shaped the contours of fundamental values of India. Yeah, I mean, just just listening to you about what the 42nd Amendment fully entails, like not just the inclusion of the word secularism, but sort of stopping the constitutional court of the country from looking at the constitutionality of, of fundamental rights. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very frightening, you know, to think about the kind of uh, changes these amendments could do. And, you know, and there are other amendments we could have long discussions on. And I think one that you have had was, I think, for the 10th schedule, which was brought in, I think, in the 1980s on anti-defection, yeah. you know, and how that has changed the role of parliamentarians in our democracy, when, you know, the powers of the whip, the powers of, you know, how, you know, parliamentarians can vote in on a bill. So continuously we see this sort of change or evolution through amendments. And I, I thank you for bringing that up and sort of giving us that context. Yeah, um, if, I, if I could just chip in, um, thankfully, thankfully, um, uh, much to our pleasure, major parts of the 42nd Amendment have been, were either undone by other future amendments or by the judgment or by several judgments of the Supreme Court. But again, why should we be concerned? Because again, for a very brief period in Indian history, it suddenly appeared that there was nothing the parliament could not do. So yes, it's, it's a very worrisome thought. And I think uh, even though the much of the amendment has been undone, we should never let go of that, of that aspect that, um, and let's not forget that the amendment was brought about by a popularly elected government which was tasked with representing the will of the people, uh, the, your will and my will, interest of the electorate. So yes, I mean, we should just sometimes look at governmental actions um, with, with some sort of, some sort of, I don't want to say suspicion, but some sort of skepticism at that point. I think that's what the 42nd Amendment um, means to me at this point. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, uh, I feel like, you know, that's the beauty of our constitution is that it gives us the freedom to think and you know, reflect on uh, each and every action by, as you said, the powers of the constitution, like the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. And I think that that is something impressive as an enduring value that we, we hold dear today. Saying that, uh, I thank you, Ritwika, for being here and sharing your views on the values that shaped India. Now, of course, each idea touched upon today between us requires far more discussions to truly understand the depth, you know, that underpins the Republic of India. Nevertheless, I hope that this episode would give our listeners a lot to think about with regards to the conception of India. This brings us to the end of episode three of the Book of India Conversations. The Vidhi Center for Legal Policy will continue to hold a series of offline and online conversations with the aim to start a broader discussion on the constitution of India.